Digital Dust is a history podcast about the stuff you learned in school with a perspective you might not have considered. So last week we talked about all things the Iliad. We looked at how historians construct the ancient past through art and archaeology and the tales that survive. We talked about what survives from Bronze Age Greece and how the Iliad fits into our understanding of that period. We asked ourselves whether the Iliad is a true story and what parts of it might be true. We talked about the stories that surround the Iliad, the ones that don't actually take place in the 24 books. Most importantly for this week, we looked at the Judgment of Paris and the Trojan Horse. And then we summarized every important thing that happens in the Iliad. So coming into this, you know what's canon and what isn't. If you missed that episode and you don't know much about the Iliad, I would recommend listening to it first. It's not necessary, but this episode is going to assume a base of knowledge, and if you don't have it, you might get lost. Before we turn back to the group, I do want to put a disclaimer on this. There are going to be books or TV shows or movies that you loved that I didn't, and vice versa, there's going to be things that I loved that you didn't. And last but not least, a content warning. Like the last episode, we're going to be discussing rape and murder in this episode. Neither in great detail, but just know that those are coming. And with that, I hand the reins back. So just as a quick summary as as to why we've even done this, beyond like me having an art background and taking that myth course like three years ago. Um, In January, I decided to listen to The Song of Achilles, which I'm sure you've probably heard of. It's a super famous book, came out in 2011, and it's like famous on like TikTok and and Instagram, and I fell into all the peer pressure. And then when I finished that, I was like, "Mm, I'm going to reread the Iliad because, you know, I want to compare and contrast because I'm a nerd. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And I read the Iliad for the first time, like in first or second year for class. I didn't really remember it that well. And then after I finished that, I fell off the deep end. And I watched Troy, Fall of a City, which is a TV show made by the BBC. Then I read Pat Barker's Silence of the Girls, which is a feminist retelling. Then I subjected my poor parents to the two-hour and 40-minute nightmare that is Troy 2004, (laughs) which no movie no movie needs to be two hours and 40 minutes. Wow. It Say was... that to uh, Titanic. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Is that how long Titanic is? Or any of Titanic the is like the three Rings hours. <laughs> or any of the, like, the director's cut, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. Avengers oh, Endgame. I mean, there are a lot of movies that are great that are. Over... Let me tell you. <laughs> did you take a break? Did. We did not take a break. No. Oh, God. My poor parents. I'm sorry, mom and dad. Dad doesn't listen to this. I'm sorry, mom. I think the main criticism is that it just needed to be better. But like two hours Trust me, there are main criticisms fine. of it. Don't worry. <laughs> Brad and then I, makes it better. Makes it better. And then I finished with Natalie Hayes' A Thousand Ships. And then I to- told myself I had to stop. Because there are tons of retellings out there, but like I had really fallen off the deep end. And so I just chose the ones that were most famous on like TikTok and Instagram. And then I was like, no more. Hmm. Okay, so I have ratings for each of these, and then I also want to talk about things I really like, and then I want to talk about major changes. So, uh, coming in at dead last, I... Nearly 3,000 years ago, the passion for one woman 
ignited the greatest battle ever fought for love. I'm sure you've already uh, got in your brains. It's Troy, 2004. Before my time is done, I will look down on your corpse and smile. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry if you love this movie. I know a lot of people have like um nostalgia for this movie. It obviously came out almost two decades ago, and it really falls into that early two thousands category of ancient movies that are just wars. I'm thinking Gladiator, I'm thinking 300, I'm even thinking something like A Knight's Tale, mm. things like that, right? So the goal of this is totally unclear. Is it fighting? Is it gore? Is it Brad Pitt with long hair? Nobody knows. <laughs> so that's part of my issue. <laughs> There's not a lot of clarity of what the point of retelling this story is beyond being like, war is fun. Because there are no gods involved. So much so yeah. that Liz mentioned that they sack the Temple of Apollo. The Greeks go and sack the Temple of Apollo and nothing happens to them. Huh. Apollo does not get angry at them. There is no plague. There's nothing. Wow. There's also, they like come onto the beach and then three days later, they're like Trojan horse. And you're like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> this conflict is a decade long. Huh. Really weird. And then also it depicts a consensual relationship between Achilles and his war prize slash human being, yeah. Briseis, which casually ignores rape across the board. And they also don't have Criseus in it at all. So it doesn't really make sense. Right. And like mm. also sort of slavery? Like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were taken as slaves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, super weird. It's just yeah. sensationalizing the whole thing for big bucks, I guess. Exactly. For yeah. big bucks. The only thing they do quite well is the scene between Achilles and Priam in which Achilles gives back the body because he does give back the body and he does do the 12 days of um, mourning. That's what it's called. And he's also like kind of remorseful about it. And Priam is like good and, and crying. But that's the only good thing about the adaptation. If you like gore, watch it. But if you're looking for like anything that has to do with the Iliad. I mean, 300's better at this point. Huh. Not for the Iliad, but just in general. It <laughs> isn't even about the Iliad, they, and it's better. Did they preserve his body in this movie, too, or they didn't? Do no, because they only have the body for, like, a couple hours, I swear. Oh. They really fast-forwarded everything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, and in the movie, Patroclus is, like, 15. You're like, uh, oh. they're cousins. They're not lovers. They're cousins. Yeah. Same. They they said, it's 2004. Homosexuality is a no but we'll talk about that no, more. Girl, they've been saying that for a while. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so that's that's Troy 2004. Did I give a rating to Troy 2004? It gets a two. I was going to say, it, it, okay, two it out gets of a two. what? Five. Not out of two ten. Out that of would be intense. Silence of the Girls gets a three. So it passes, but not by much. Silence of the Girls is basically a feminist approach to the Iliad. It's told from the perspective of Briseis. And I went into Silence of the Girls being like, this is going to be the best book. Like, I'm so, I'm so excited. Whatever. It opens in a way that you're like, oh, my God, this is going to be great. Because it opens with Briseis, like, hearing Achilles, like, outside because she's hiding while he's taking her town. And she's like, we don't call him Achilles. We call him the Butcher. 
And you're like, oh, yeah, this is going to be like a total takedown of the idea of Achilles as a hero. And then it's not. And you're like, oh, okay. Because halfway through the book, it switches to Achilles' perspective. You're like, the silence of the girls, Achilles is a man. And it justifies all of his actions. He's also, like, not mean to her. He does rape her, but, like, she's like... He's not. What's well, like mean. Stockholm syndrome kind yeah. of? Yeah. Oh, Stockholm yeah. syndrome to the max because she escapes and you want to know what she does? She comes back. Oh. And Achilles is like, "Why are you coming back?" Oh. Because he was like, "Yeah, leave. Like I don't care." He doesn't even like her. <sighs> yeah. I it was and some then it, the beast. Oh, it's yeah, it's some Beauty and the Beast. Oof. Next level. And next. Next level. And then it ends with her pregnant with Achilles' child. Achilles is dead. By the way, Achilles does die in the war. I didn't talk about his death. He does die. Achilles is dead. She's pregnant with his child. And she's like, I'm happy I'm alive. And you're like, why? Why are you happy you're alive? What is there to be happy about? So the only, well, no, it's not a bad book if you take away the idea that it's supposed to be a feminist retelling. If it's just a retelling, it's pretty interesting. And it does the characterization of Patroclus very well and we'll talk about him a little bit more when we talk about this question of whether or not he was in a relationship with Achilles but it's definitely my favorite characterization of Patroclus that was three now we also have at three fall of a city which is an eight-part miniseries by the BBC and it gets a three because its goal was to get viewers to sympathize with the Trojans it takes a Trojan perspective and it does that, uh, but it does it too much. Oh. You're like, mm, I don't know anything about the Greeks right now. You never get told that Achilles <laughs> is like half God. You don't really know much about Achilles at all during it. Um, Paris is quite hot, so that's nice. He's a, he's a pretty attractive actor. Hotter than Orlando Bloom? Um, <laughs> yes, wow. but that's because, okay. yeah, oh, I mean, here's the, the thing, though. So they do achieve their goal. They do get you to sympathize with the Trojans. But it's just a little too pro-Trojan for me to give it a four. There are things I love about this adaptation. It chooses to depict the fluidity of Greek relationships. So it has Achilles and Patroclus as lovers. It also has, like, Briseis. They, like, make a point of um, showing rape, but they, like, choose not to have Briseis raped by Achilles. And instead, they're just having three sums everywhere. It's actually pretty funny. They, like, wake up one morning to, like, the general outside And the three of them, like, crawl out of bed. It's pretty funny. They have a great relationship. They also cast black men in a bunch of the major roles. So not – this isn't the full list, but Achilles, Zeus, Aeneas, and Nestor are all black men, including Aeneas as Alfred Enoch. Alfred Enoch is Dean from Harry Potter or Wes from How to Get Away with Murder. He is the most perfect Aeneas. Yeah. I just – it's great. And the casting in general is, like, really great. Like, they just did a really good job at, like, um, getting the, like, Odysseus is just the greatest, like, little scrawny little man. And you're like, that is what Odysseus looks like. Um, And it's just like, yeah, you're just vibing. And then, obviously, if Zeus is a black man, that means that there are gods in the show. They're not the greatest. They they do leave at about episode five and just never come back, which is kind of weird. But they show the judgment of Paris. They show, like, Aphrodite. They show um, the gods in the middle of the war, like, actually, like, changing what's happening. Pretty great. 
Then we have the two that are tied for the best, which is A Thousand Ships and The Song of Achilles. Two drastically different tellings, but like really great in their own way. We'll start with A Thousand Ships. So A Thousand Ships takes a feminist approach to the Iliad, but unlike The Silence of the Girls, it achieves that goal. It really says, what if men did not matter? No offense, Patrick. <laughs> no, it's fine. No, yeah. It like it in full agreement here. It's okay. <laughs> in full agreement. So the idea was what if men played the role that women often play, which is like a side character or a background character who has a couple lines and doesn't come back. It's a great story. But I need to say, if you want to read it, you need to do one of two things. Either listening to this podcast might have been enough, but I would also recommend maybe like Googling a synopsis of what happens in the Iliad or watching, I think it's called Overly Sarcastic Productions. They do a lot of Greek myth videos and they're, they have like a 24 minute summary of everything that happens in the Iliad. And the reason I say this is because Natalie Hayes said chronology, I don't know her. And so I think the first... Is she Christopher Nolan? Yeah. Oh, my God. It's worse than that, though. (laughs) The first chapter opens at the Siege of Troy. And the only reason that this works is because every chapter switches perspective. So in one chapter, you have the perspective of, say, Briseis. And then another, you have the perspective of Cassandra, who's... um, the sister of Hector and Paris. And then in another chapter, you have the perspective of Penelope, who is the wife that Odysseus has left behind. And so it moves through time and space. And so if you know the story, it's pretty easy to be like, oh, they have now been taken captive by the Greeks, so I know where I am. If you don't know the story, you will be so lost, it will hurt you. But it's worth it because Natalie Hayes made the decision to not just feature one person. So Silence of the Girls is all about Briseis, right? Every other woman is not relevant. Natalie Hayes was like, no, no, no. Any war, any war, any woman that this war touches will get a chapter in this book. And so there are like the gods get chapters, the fates get chapters, the muses get chapters. And it's so fun to like jump between all these people and see how the war is affecting them in different ways and it's also like funny and witty and the women just get to be like cruel sometimes like there's a there's a scene in which Hecuba kills someone and you're like go Hecuba she's the queen in case you forgot you're like yes like every person gets their story told in some way shape or form and so it's a very enjoyable feminist retelling the only other problem I have with it, and this is just a personal problem as someone who loves Patroclus, um, for some reason she has Patroclus rape Briseis, which doesn't really make sense, and also didn't add to the plot at all, and no. it was just unsettling. But that's just a personal thing. Like if you don't care about Patroclus, you won't care. He he features in like two pages. Again, he's just a background character in Briseis's own story, but. Yeah, it, it was a little jarring for me when I first read it. I the, I took notes as I was reading that because I, by March, I was like, I'm going to do a podcast on this. And I started taking notes. And one of the notes is like, what is happening? I'm so scared. <laughs> because I was very Aww. concerned for Patroque. And then last but not least, we have 
the Song of Achilles, which is definitely the most famous, I, I would say, other than Troy. Troy is quite famous. It's a 2011 book that the goal is to reframe the story around a single character who's actually like a background character, which is Patroclus. Despite being the like inciter of events in the Iliad, he has like five combined lines. (laughs) Now, this is a really great version. I'll start with my criticisms because then I'll go into a long rant about what I really like about this. Um, But my main criticism is that it's very romanticized. It is, it's basically, and there's a reason for that, but basically, like, there's no rape at all. Mm, I guess Chryseis is, is raped in the background. But, like, Achilles does absolutely no raping because as a society, we've decided that we can forgive murder, but we cannot forgive rape. That's a, that's a side note that I just have against this idea that rape is, like, the worst thing that can happen to a person. Anyway. Um, and also, she doesn't treat the female characters very well. Uh, there are basically only two, Didamia, who is the wife of Achilles, and Briseis. And neither of them have, like, at all good plot lines or, like, interesting lives, which is, like, really annoying. <laughs> but just read. Actually, I don't think Didamia comes up in A Thousand Ships because she is not relevant. She is uh, married to Achilles, but Achilles doesn't really like her oh. and he leaves again he says don't touch me he's like i don't to need everyone it. <laughs> yeah he's like a woman no thank you um <laughs> yeah and achilles is also like very nice in this version which isn't necessarily a criticism so much as it's just like not true he is not nice in the iliad and he is quite nice in song of achilles but that is because of what this is and it is a story told in the perspective of patroclus as i mentioned who is supposed to be deeply in love with achilles so the idea of this book is that you Mm. look at patroclus's whole life he's born um, to a king and then he gets exiled for murder and he ends up this is all true to the iliad he ends up growing up alongside achilles and so they're kind of like foster brothers and the idea that she decided was what if we just took Patroclus's whole perspective and we looked at everything so from this moment where he murders someone all the way up through and past his death and it's great because she really sets up a world that you love like if you get through Song of Achilles and you don't love Patroclus with your whole heart bruh you have like some sort of (laughs) superpower because you just like feel for him and I don't know. I just, I can't even describe it. You just like, I like him, you know? He is not um, the best of the Myrmidons in this retelling. He's not even a fighter in this retelling. And Miller does that so that you don't get the perspective of someone murdering a bunch of people all the time. But it is kind of sad because you're like, this man's supposed to be a really great fighter and, and he's just sitting at home waiting for Achilles to arrive. And you're like, this feels stereotypical. Yeah. Anyway. He just came into yeah. the stay-at-home wife role, eh? Yeah. Literally. Stay-in-tent wife, shall we say, Ooh. because they're living in tents. <laughs> but the thing about the Song of Achilles that is the reason that I wanted to do it last is because it does something in its last chapter. And I will say, if you haven't read the Song of Achilles and you're not the three people I'm looking at right now, maybe skip the next five minutes because... This is something that Madeline Miller waits to do till the last chapter, and it comes as a surprise, and it is the reason that I sobbed for like two hours after I finished reading this book. And so 
basically, this book goes through the first 32 chapters are just the story of the Iliad and then like Achilles' death. So Achilles has already died by the beginning of the last chapter. But the last chapter tries to answer this question about what to do with Patroclus's legacy. So the basic idea is that Achilles and Patroclus have been mixed together. Their ashes have been mixed into one single urn, and this is canon in the Iliad. So they spend eternity together. That's so sweet. I know. It's so cute. Oh, they're like at Patroclus's funeral, and Achilles turns to all his men, and he's like, I charge you to mix our ashes when I die. Because he knows he's going to die, right? Right. And so their ashes are mixed, and Odysseus is leading a little meeting to be like, what do we do? Like, what do we make their tomb look like? And in rolls, dun, 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 Achilles' 12-year-old son. His name is Neptolemus. <gasps> And he, I know, Neptolemus, and he is um, the son of Achilles and Didamia, who I just mentioned earlier. And he denies Patroclus the right to a marked grave. So the idea is he comes in and he says, what right does a commoner have to be marked with my father, the best of the Greeks? And Odysseus is like, well, uh, Patroclus isn't a commoner, right? Like he, he was a son of a king. He was just exiled. And Neptolemus is like, also, I don't care. Also, what right do you have as a 12-year-old? Yeah. It, you you want to <laughs> okay. struggle someone. <laughs> I know. He's <laughs> literally 12. <laughs> yeah. And so the last chapter is spent with Patroclus caught between this world and the next. Because the idea, the religion, says that without a marked grave, you cannot get to the underworld. So Achilles has a marked grave. And he's left. And Patroclus is left as a ghost. And so as a ghost, he can't communicate with the living except when they're asleep. And so he goes to people in their sleep. It's so sad. He goes to people in their sleep and begs them to try and get his grave marked. And so characters like Odysseus will go back to Neptolemus and be like, I feel so bad. Like, we all loved Patroclus. Can we mark his grave? And this little twerp keeps saying no. And then the Greeks leave. And they're all gone. And Patroclus is sat on the beach in Troy just like, alone it's very sad and so tragic don't worry don't worry and then basically what happens is you come to the realization that the song of achilles is him retelling his life to achilles mom thetis who has come to the grave and because she's a senith she can see him and they sit at his grave and they talk about achilles and while they're doing this god it like it is so sad while they're doing this she's like doing whatever and he's just talking and then she's like, it is done. And he's like, what's done? And he looks and she's like scratched in his name into the tomb so he can make it to the afterlife. Aww. And the book ends with them meeting in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's so cute. So cute. That's so nice. So nice. Oh my God. So happy for that. So, wow. so happy. You're like crying because you're like, every time Neptolemus is like, no, you just cry harder and poor Patroque. But... What I love about this, beyond just being like a really great end, because in the true Iliad, Patroclus has a marked grave before Achilles even dies. And so Miller made this change as a critique on the discipline of history, which is so interesting because for so long, people denied Patroclus the right of what he actually was, which if, if nothing else, he was a very important person to Achilles. In the Iliad, when 
Achilles learns that Patroclus has died. It's my favorite thing because it's so dramatic. He picks up a bunch of ashes from a fire and just like swipes them down his face. And it's just because he's just like in mourning and he starts screaming. Yeah, he's it's metal as hell. He, yeah, that is metal as hell. <laughs> Achilles is really like drama queen number one. <laughs> but Miller makes this amazing argument against what historians have done for so long. And this idea that Neptolemus, while also just being a homophobic little twerp, really signifies what historians did, right? And this idea of picking and choosing what aspects of Achilles' identity they liked and only referencing those. And this goes deeper because on the tomb, there's like Achilles killing all those people. He, he kills Hector. So there's a picture of him killing Hector. And Patroclus is like, this isn't who Achilles was. Like he wasn't just a warrior. Like why can't you show other parts of him? And it's a great look at this kind of idea of constructing history. And I think that if you read the Song of Achilles and you weren't a historian, it might get lost on you. Because if you don't know that history is constructed, and I think Miller kind of did this on purpose because she said it's a sad story regardless. But if you don't know that history is constructed, you don't really know that historians make these choices, right? They make them all the time about who is worthy of being remembered and who isn't. And so in 2011, which isn't super old, but you know, 2011, it's now a decade ago, which makes me like hurt in my little soul to think that 2011 was a decade ago. Yeah. But <laughs> that's fine, I guess. Um, but this idea that that she would criticize the discipline for so long, even up until something like Troy, which came out in 2004, for completely ignoring the role that Patroclus plays in Achilles' life. And so it just... And when I say I cried for two hours, like I have so many pictures of myself like sobbing because I was trying to convince my friends to read this book as I was reading it. And I was like, you know, what the best idea is I'm just going to take a picture of myself. I won't lie. At one point in time, I listened to this book. At one point in time, I had to get onto the ground because I was so Aww. sad that I was like, I can't keep walking. Like, I just need to I just need to lie on the floor and listen to this. It was I think it was like when the Greeks left or something. It was just so sad. But it serves a purpose that is so different from any of the others, even from the feminist retellings that do a similar thing of this argument of like, who do we talk about? Madeline Miller goes beyond it because she actually points out what historians have done for so long about picking and choosing aspects of characters who we love and not giving them their full life and not actually being like, ah, oh, yes, they were a human being. So I highly recommend reading the Song of Achilles. It is very sad. You will cry, uh, but you'll enjoy it because you'll be like, mm, yay. <laughs> now, the last thing that we're going to do, I know I've been talking forever and you're probably so sick and tired of my voice, but I'm not. I'm kidding. I hate the sound of my voice, but it's fine. <laughs> I want to talk about three changes that get made largely in different retellings and then and maybe this is a point in time where you guys get to talk again. We can talk about what modern retellings tell us about modern viewers and why we make these changes and what it means to individuals who are, you know, reading this in 2011 or 2021 and why these changes are made. So the first one is kind of obvious and I've alluded to it a lot. Actually, I've alluded to a different one way more, but it's this idea of the gods and the role that the gods play. So in th right. three of the five tellings, the gods are not relevant at all. 
That's The Song of Achilles, The Silence of the Girls, and Troy. And this kind of makes sense, right? We're, we're modern viewers. We don't worship this specific pantheon of gods. We'd have a really difficult time understanding this idea that the gods are playing with human souls. But I don't think it's the right choice. Because, and Patrick alluded to this earlier, this idea that human beings in war are not just subjected to their own decision making, right? There are other factors at play that affect how war plays out. So Mm -hmm. without the gods, it becomes a story of war without reason. It's a story that places the entire war, the blame for everything on a single woman who has basically no choice and is also a victim of the war. But with the gods, it's a story about the futility of human life and about how the choices that we make don't actually, not don't matter, but they aren't the only thing that affects how we exist. The book that does this best is A Thousand Ships. As I mentioned, the gods get their own like little bits. And like, it's so fun. Like there's a a scene between Themis, who I think is like the goddess of like... fate or something she's like a lesser god and zeus where they're like back and forth about how to start the war they're like oh it's getting really crowded down there on earth let's start a war and they go back and forth about what kind of war they should start and they're like oh it's always good when we fight the east like that's pretty fun let's do that and then they're like how are we going to cause the war it's a pretty fun chapter and it really that's neat. yeah it's really neat and it like lends this idea just because helen was stolen and just because you know, Agamemnon's like, ah, I want to fight someone, doesn't really mean that that's the only relevant part. Um, so I, I think that more people need to include the gods, but apparently that's a me thing and, and not, a, not an everyone thing. Now we actually get to the really interesting question, which is this common debate, which is, were Patroclus and Achilles lovers? Um, do any of you have opinions on this? I don't, I don't know if you would, but I just thought I'd ask. Yeah, Patrick. I have a, a, a interesting thing. Uh, shout out to Laurel if she's listening. Oh. But uh, yeah, uh, she, uh, she teaches the history of sexuality, which is one of the courses I was in this year. And there's something that we talk a lot about, which is sort of the modern conception of homosexuality yes. as an identity. Mm-hmm. Not that not that people haven't had sex with uh, people of the, the same gender for a long time or whatever, but that uh, the the term or title or identity of being a a homosexual is is modern it's yes. something from the, the 19th century and so they could have been lovers for sure but they wouldn't have identified as gay cool. because they couldn't have nice. because that term didn't exist yet yes so that's that's my only thought love on that it, i'm curious to hear what you think love that um uh, yeah i would i would some people refer to them as gay or hadrian who's a an emperor of rome who is notorious for having started a cult for his dead lover who is also a man and they'll be, call him gay. And I'm like, no, nah, that's that's not how he would have identified. But thank you for that, Patrick, because that's True. Um, great. Any other opinions on anything before I, I sort of rant? I, I can see why people would think that they were lovers. And I think that they are. But my really only reasoning is that I know that, well, first of all, if you look at his relationship, Achilles' relationship with his wife, there isn't a lot going on there, but a lot of people were forced into arrangements just for procreation. And so that was a big thing in the ancient Greek society and, and in Rome as well, where you're kind of your spouse was for procreation and reproduction. And you had a lover, whether it was someone who identified that the same gender as you or not, who would be there as more of um, a partner for pleasure. So 
Yeah. But I do also know that I, I think Achilles kind of he slept around a little bit. Mm, I don't think yeah. he was like, yeah, like, you know, <laughs> and so again, like what Patrick says, like there isn't necessarily the historic context there of you were gay or you mm-hmm. weren't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was just part of like, I guess, gender in in society at that time is a lot of uh, men, especially men of power, like they they had different relationships with different people for different reasons, I guess. Yeah. 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 I completely agree with you guys. I think especially if Homer is meant to be a man of his time, that's something that wasn't supposed to be or it didn't have to be explicitly said. It was demonstrated through Achilles' passion and through the their relationship that was demonstrated and written. It's meant for us to be inter- for it to be interpreted by us. But uh yeah, there was no need to just write it out like this is the nature of their relationship. It's like you got it. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um yeah also the the other thing that kind of comes to mind is just that like even friendship as an idea is so contingent on the the culture and the context and the time and everything so like like i mean in some ways i don't know why people are so interested in in the identity the the sexual identity of achilles but uh uh but it's you know it's important to consider that like this like you're never gonna know because you you don't know what identity was like in ancient greece because you're not from ancient greece and so like they could have been just really good friends but friendship could have meant a totally different thing or they could have been lovers and that meant a different thing or they could have been a whole host of things yeah and we're never gonna know yeah sorry to be a pessimist but no no that's that's great like that idea of like historians we can't know the past in that way right we can't know what it's like to be an ancient greek in the 15th century bce or the 8th century bce so yeah it's definitely like a a debate that will always go on i just wanted to bring up three things from the actual iliad not to make this this case but um i read the iliad and i was like i can't believe all these crusty old men thank you rob (laughs) crusty old (laughs) crusty old white man dna read this and we're like yeah this is what bros do for each other so there's three things the first after patroclus dies while his his body's burning achilles turns to his men and he says if other men forget the dead in hades i will remember my beloved companion even there Mm. and i'm like okay okay yeah cool Mm -hmm. yeah uh when you forget everyone else but you remember your boy (laughs) <laughs> the se- the second is Patroclus comes back as a ghost to Achilles in his sleep um, in the Iliad. And he says, do not lay my bones apart from yours, Achilles, but together. And so this is this idea. They are buried in one golden urn that belonged, I think, to Patroclus's mother. That could be wrong. And then the third one, and this doesn't have a quote, is that when Patroclus dies, Zeus up on Mount Olympus turns to everyone and he says... We, we need to, this is paraphrasing, we need to rein this man in because he can break fate. His emotions can deny fate. This idea that he was fated to die and that he was so angry in this moment that he could have done whatever he wanted and no one could have stopped him. So, you know, whether or not you want to spend eternity with your bro, I just find it funny that all these crusty old white <laughs> men were like, yeah, that's what I want my bro to do. I want to be buried with you. Um, <laughs> bros for eternity bros for eternity so each of these retellings answers this differently obviously the song of Achilles and fall of a city both say yes they were in a relationship silence of the girl says maybe maybe not Briseis at one point is like there's a rumor that they're sleeping together but I don't know and you're like okay and then Troy and a thousand ships say no no but 
this led me to an, a realization that comes into the characterization of Patroclus. So Patroclus can be one of two things in any retelling. He can be the lover of Achilles, or he can be the best of the Myrmidons, but he's never both. And to me, this doesn't speak to the Iliad so much as it speaks to modern readership and the tropes and stereotypes that we like to put gay men, again, Patroclus is not gay, but this idea that gay men cannot be masculine in the way that we understand it. And that the closest Patroclus ever comes to this kind of middle ground is in The Silence of the Girls. But again, because it is the best characterization of him, but he is never explicitly in a relationship. Really, they're just like good friends. Um, Although, as a side note, Achilles does kiss Patroclus on the mouth, but it's after Patroclus is dead. And you're like, "Mm, that's a little nasty. And he does it every morning. And you're like, that's a little nasty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Spicy. Spicy. (laughs) Literally. You're like, "Mm." Like, yeah, just "Mm." put some spices on first. (laughs) Maybe it'll taste better Um, now. (laughs) It's like a tequila shot, you know? Oh my God. That's a body. That's a body. It's a body shot. There you go. Oh my God. It's getting worse. Anyway, this came to me. I don't. I don't really know when, but I thought it was kind of interesting, and it and it speaks to the role that retellings have in modern day. Right? We don't tell retellings because we care about the actual Iliad. We tell them because we want them to reflect modernity and what it means to us. And it just makes me sad for Patroclus, who's just a baller, and he never gets to be the his baller self. That's all. Then we have one final change, which is my favorite change. In two of the tellings, my two favorite tellings, which is why it's my favorite change. So when Patroclus dies in the Iliad, 12 Trojan boys are sacrificed on his altar. It's super nasty. You're like, okay, Achilles. Achilles does all the murdering. And you're like, of course he does. You're nodding along and you're like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) (laughs) mm-hmm. And both the Song of Achilles and a thousand ships omit this sacrifice. And that's not because they're like, oh, well, maybe in Madeline Miller's case, she's like, I don't really know if we can have Achilles murdering 12 people in front of everyone. But it's not necessarily this idea that, like, human sacrifice is cruel, and it's not even the idea that human sacrifice is unheard of. The point is because if we had these 12 boys die, it undermines the two other human sacrifices in the story. So there are two sacrifices that occur in both these retellings and... For the most part, they are accepted sacrifices. Neither of them happen in the Iliad itself, but they would have happened in the epic cycle. And the first is Iphigenia, who's the daughter of Agamemnon. And basically, long story short, Artemis is unhappy with the Greeks. They didn't give her enough sacrifices before the war begins, so she stops the winds, and they can't travel. And this is very annoying. So... They go to a priest and the priest is like, she wants blood. And they're like, what kind of blood? And they're like, the blood of a family member. And specifically, she wants Agamemnon's, probably, she's probably about 14, um, his daughter. And he needs to do it himself. Oh. It's very nasty. Anyway, to get, yeah, yeah, to get her to come because they're no longer uh, on mainland Greece. They're no longer in Mycenae. Uh, he tells her that Achilles wants to marry her. And then when she gets to the altar, he slits her throat. It's very depressing. She doesn't even Not know. Not Achilles. 
yeah, she doesn't even know. Um, Agamemnon slits her throat. So super sad. And um, in the Song of Achilles, the idea is like, how horrifying is this? And Achilles is like horrified. He goes into like shock because there's like blood all over him because he's like standing there. He assumed he was getting married. No one questioned the fact that he was already married. No one told him. <laughs> Wait, I didn't know he was no one coming. told him. Oh no. No one told him. It was very yeah, it's like super shocking. Um and then of course in A Thousand Ships, which is a feminist retelling, the idea is like the death of this poor like child to support a war that like nobody even thinks is worthwhile. The second death is also the murder of a child. Nice. <laughs> we love the sacrificing of, of ch- children. And this is Polyxena, who's the youngest of all of the Trojan princesses. And she's sacrificed on Achilles' burial ground by Neptolemus, the um, son of Achilles. And again, so for a thousand ships, the idea is the death of this like poor girl. Although the idea here is like she doesn't choose to be sacrificed because they do it either way but that she says i'd rather die free than live as a slave and get sacrificed on the altar and in the song of achilles it's meant to um emphasize how much of a little twerp neptolemus is which is just yeah such a twerp such a twerp so annoying it's like so sad anyway my favorite this is my favorite change because it's a change that isn't necessarily about like modern readers understanding of human sacrifice because human sacrifice is going to happen anyway but it's a it's a change that happens for the narrative to make the narrative more interesting and more compelling and it's just like Mm. super super fun um it's not it's very sad anytime someone is killed in these stories now the ending of this podcast is like a little up in the air. I'm just going to say, read The Song of Achilles or A Thousand Ships. If you have to watch something, watch The Fall of a City. Do not watch Troy, unless you love gore. But then watch 300. That's the obvious answer. we got something for everyone. That checks. Yeah, something that for everyone. Good. Super fun. Listen to The Song of Achilles. Madeline Miller's writing is much better spoken than it is read. Don't ask me why. It's super cloggy when you read it. But when you listen to it, it's like poetry. Um, so... Nice. Listen to either of her books. Cersei, her other book, is also great. Highly yeah, recommend. I've heard good things about that cool. one. Yeah. Um, it's it's about the Odyssey. So it's about the other one of cool. Homer's tales. So I'll just finish off by saying, I hope through this podcast, you've begun to understand how historians create history, how we know what we know about the Iliad, and then looked at how we judge historical fiction. So we look at what changes they make, and not necessarily that all changes are bad. I like a lot of these changes, but it's the question of what the purpose of a change is, and asking yourself if a change is for the narrative, or if it's for the viewers, if it's for one or the other, and looking at when something's made and how that affects the story it's telling. If it's Troy 2004, it's fitting into a genre of movies that are blockbuster hits, and so it's not gonna put in two men having sex it would not make money in 2004 for that. Compare that to 2018, where you have a lot different content, even though it's only a decade and a half. So of course, Fall of a City put in that relationship. And ask yourself what dates and time have to do with telling. And that's actually kind of like historiography. That's a, that's a story for another time, because again, this has been going on for too long. 
But thank you for indulging me in uh, letting me like geek out about this for literally at this point in time. We've been recording for an hour and 36 minutes, guys. Please send all the love to Liz, Robin, and Patrick because they had to sit through this live no. and they couldn't fast forward me. No, no this is so great. I loved it so much. Mm-hmm. I loved it too. I just... <laughs> <laughs> Patrick actually I thought they covered it. it, but then I worried that my silence would mean that you'd think they hated it. Uh, no, thank you for this. This was mm-hmm. awesome. Very insightful, honestly. You're, yeah, you know a lot about it. This is good. That was really awesome. Not going to lie, I really want to watch Troy again now. <laughs> right? It's on Netflix, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, or Amazon I think Prime. I might have to do it. You're like, even after all the yeah. warnings, I still know what's up. Brad Pitt, here I come. I mean, yeah, right. Brad Pitt. Like, come on. Yeah. Brad Pitt. Oh, yeah. Chef's it's kiss. Classic. So, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks, Katie. See you on the flippity flop. See you on the flippity flop. Digital Dust is recorded on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Lenapowak, and Attawandaran peoples, on lands connected with the London Township and Somber Treaties of 1796, and the Dish with One Spoon Covenant Wampum. This land continues to be home to First Nations peoples, Métis peoples, and Inuit peoples whom we recognize as the contemporary stewards of the land and the waters we are on today. Digital Dust is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Edwards, Katie Gaskin, Patrick Kingham, and Robin Marshall. Sound design by Elizabeth Edwards, audio transcription by Katie Gaskin. Our theme music is by Matthias Miller. (laughs) 